Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Clinical Science Podcast. My name is Dr. Matthew Panarella. We're at episode 10 today, first one of 2023. <clears throat> you can hear that I'm a little bit under the weather. I'm getting over the flu, so uh, pardon me for my nasal tone. Glad to be here. I uh, have, a, have a little bit of a heavy topic today. The, today's topic is going to be uh, spay and neuter, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, primarily, really, what I'm focused on is the bad and the ugly component of spay and neuter. Uh, there will be, uh, I will cover the, the good, uh, some of the good, some of the proposed good. Most of it's going to be uh, the not so good. And at the end of the podcast, I will po post links to papers that have been published on the effects of uh, the co side effects, the consequences, downstream consequences from spay and neuter. Now, I'm not talking about acute consequences, issues with anesthesia, issues with the surgery itself. Really, what I'm focused on is what's called the pathophysiology of the loss of those gonadal hormones, testosterone and estrogen. That's really what the downstream consequences result from. And um, probably, you, you can't prove this 100%, but you can say relatively definitively based on some of the research that's been done that most of these issues are either being created or exacerbated by the lack of these gonadal hormones in, in dogs and cats. So basically what I'm doing is I'm referencing a PowerPoint, unfortunately I can't post it, that I created back in 2015 uh, for a continuing education seminar that I created this for the continuing education seminar, this PowerPoint, and it covers uh, a lot of ground, not all the ground we're going to talk about today, but unfortunately I can't post it, which is kind of a bummer, I get it, but it, it is what it is. So lots of information around, um, you know, historical perspective. Uh, I think mostly in the, in the uh, aftermath of World War II, as people were moving to more of the cities, or had moved to the cities for the war, dogs and cats were becoming more and more prevalent as cats. Yes, I know on farms there were farm dogs and farm cats. Some probably did live in the house, probably more dogs than cats. But as people moved to the cities and lived in apartments and such, then we're talking about animals being more uh, living in the home as opposed to living outdoors. And this probably led to the consequences of, I don't know, a confluence of the uh, modernization of veterinary medicine, the modernization of um, America and the cities and the growth of the cities and human populations too, obviously shifting from rural to more uh, urban areas, especially wherever a factory was. And dogs and cats took a greater prominence in people's lives. And we also had the advent of more modern anesthetics and improvements in um, surgical techniques and things like that. So that's a little bit of the perspective, I think the historical perspective on um, how things have developed. And today, there's an unknown number of dogs and cats in the United States. There is no federal database telling you that there's 5 million dogs in California, for example. Nobody really knows. All of that is a guess. Some states probably do have some reporting, especially from animal shelters, but uh, for the most part, no. Everything is a guess, and individual shelters 
for example, nobody knows how many owned pets there are, but shelters, there's has been some research done over the years and studies done um, from animal shelters and the numbers of intakes, the number of euthanasias, the number of animals that have been placed. And uh, consequently, the shelters and the rescue groups have embarked for the most part on a, uh, I would say, 100% uh, spay and neuter policy. And that's turned into now spaying and neutering animals as young as four weeks of age. Four to six weeks of age seems to be the most common. And that's probably based on a couple of things. Number one is volume. They can spay, any surgeon can spay a lot more six-week-old animals than they can six-year-old animals. Anesthesia is cheaper. The surgery is quicker. Recovery time is going to be much shorter in these smaller animals. So from the surgeons and the surgery perspective, it's a, it's simpler, it's quicker, um, it's easier, it's going, there's going to be less trauma on the patient for the acute phase of the surgery versus operating on a six-year-old uh, adult dog, which is, it's more anesthesia, it's more time-consuming, it's more technically um, demanding, and recovery is going to be longer. And it's not, in a lot of cases, it's not going to be, you know, pay the same day and go home. So that that has led to this high, what they quote unquote call high volume, high quality spay neuter. I think that is one of the most ridiculous terms I've ever heard. That's a that's a total. The ends justify the means, right? So the spay groups um, they want to neuter and spay every single thing, and and somehow that's going to decrease the population of of stray quote homeless dogs and cats. I don't think they're homeless. But be that as it may, it's turned into this culture of spay, spay, neuter, neuter, neuter. And I don't think it's done a darn thing in terms of the overall animal population because nobody knows. You can't measure it. So it's easy to say, yes, we're redu reducing the population and you can't study it. So I, I'd like to see the studies that show that all the spay and neuter over the last 30, 40, 50 years has actually done anything for the overall animal population on top of. We have people, and I referenced that on one of the podcasts, we have rescue groups bringing animals in uh, from China, for example. So I'm not clear what's going on. Um, I think there's plenty of dogs and cats in the United States, and somehow people are spending money to bring dogs from China. It makes absolutely no sense to me. And a lot of things that we do as human beings make no sense to me. A little bit of the historical perspective. So why do we perform spay and neuter? Well, at this point, let me cover a couple of different terms for this for uh, spay and neuter. One is technically overall this would be called a gonadectomy. I kind of like that because that covers both species, dog and cat, both uh, sexes, male and female. Gonadectomy, what does it actually mean? It just me, me, means you're removing the gonads. The gonads in a female would be the ovaries, the gonads in a male are the testes, testicles. And in females, sometimes we remove the um, uterus so that would be called an ovario hysterectomy. Ovario referring to the ovaries and hysterectomy referring to the removal of the uterus. There was a uh, phrase in common usage called get fixed, per se, or fixed, depending on how you want to think about that. That's a that's a simple layman's way of saying spay and neuter or gonadectomy or ovario hysterectomy. And another term for orchidectomy in a male is, of course, castration. In the last, I'd say, 20 years, and I think most of this was sparked over in Europe, 
Um, veterinarians had started doing ovariectomies. They realized that you didn't have to actually remove the uterus if there's no hormonal control of the uterus anymore by taking out the ovaries and the uterus. It's it's really unnecessary to remove it. There can be complications depending on when in the cycle the animal is spayed. I think it's gotten some favor here in the United States. And the male's orchiectomy would be the extraction removal of the testicles. And normally we're removing two testicles and two ovaries. Now, a little bit of an advance, maybe more akin to human human medicine, you can do a salpingectomy, which would preserve the ovaries, but it would block the ability of the eggs to transit down through the uterus. You would remove a section very similar to a vasectomy in a male, where you remove a piece of the vas deferens so that sperm can no longer make it out during an ejaculation. A salpingectomy would remove a piece of the salpinx, which is the a fallopian tube basically in people, but it's the same thing in dogs and cats where now the egg cannot get from the ovary to the uterus to be fertilized. So both of those procedures, the vasectomy and the salpingectomy would, would retain, uh, it would do what everybody wants. It would reduce excuse me, eliminate the animal's ability to reproduce, but it would also maintain the hormones. So there is actually a way out of all of this because basically a an ovariectomy and a um, orchiectomy are very crude things. You're taking out an entire hormonal structure, which in my opinion is unnecessary and it's causing a lot of harm downstream. Not immediate, but a lot of harm downstream. And a salpingectomy or vasectomy would really be the way to go. And also, like a lot of things, I think people, it's akin to um, prohibition. We're trying to monitor, we're trying to change people's behavior through the animal. And in Europe, they don't, uh, I can't speak about the rest of the world, but in Europe, for the most part, they're not spaying and neutering like we are here. It's more of an individual country issue, and some countries hardly spay at all. Now, they're going to spay for medical reasons. There's not going to be a blanket, yes, we're going to spay and neuter every single thing that comes through the door versus the United States, which, you know, ideally in most veterinary practices are going to spay and neuter everything that comes through the door. We talked about population control. So why perform a gonadectomy? Population control. And I say that's a maybe. We just don't know. Yes, 100%, you're going to control the reproductive ability of those individual animals. But as a population, we just don't know. So what I would say is, it's a maybe, it's a possible, we don't know for sure that it's going to, but it's possible that's the case. And again, I mentioned controlling human behavior. Medically, there's some benefits to performing gonadectomy. One, you're going to, if you remove the uterus, you're going to eliminate the chance for a uterine infection, as long as there was an infection of what we call the stump, what's remaining of the uterus, which can happen. Almost 100% eliminate mammary cancer if you spay a female before the first heat. Every subsequent heat thereafter, you start to decrease the benefit of reducing the risk of breast cancer. Uh, in females, there's no bleeding during their normal cycles. And in tomcats, if you remove their testicles, then you basically eliminate, uh, not 100%, but I'd say 99%, their um, desire to mark territory. Some cats will spray on a vertical surface, they'll back up to it, and they will create a little bit of urine onto the vertical surface to mark it as their territory. Basically, you can eliminate that. You're going to decrease in males the 
desire to roam, meaning jump the fence, meaning run around and, and make new dogs and cats. And also you're going to minimize, again, probably not eliminate, but if there's an aggressive male, you're probably going to take some of that aggression down by removing the testicles. Bay and neuter gonadectomy is a treatment at, at, at this point is a surgical treatment for some for several problems, one of them being pyometra or a, a pus-filled uterus. You can try medically to resolve that, but for the most part, um, a hysterectomy, actually you don't have to remove the ovaries, but a hysterectomy would actually work. Again, I think that's more of a nuanced take. I don't know if that's being done or not at this point. Prostatic disease in males, a lot of times will be, males will be, um, uh, will have their testicles removed. Um, or cancer of the prostate, cancer of the prostate, cancer of the prostate, or cancer of the testicle. Uh, ovarian cancer, I've never heard of it. I'm sure it can happen in dogs and cats, but I think it would be one of the most extremely rare cases of cancer. But the answer to that would be to remove the uh, affected organ. Testicular, I talked about uterine cancer, certainly possible, and mammary neoplasia. Um, as far as we know in veterinary medicine, most of the Mammary cancers are triggered by the hormones. I'm sure there's some that are not. But again, if there's an animal with mammary cancer, a female, you're going to remove the mammary tumors and you're going to remove the ovaries. Uh, terminology, I did forget to mention sterilization. <clears throat> sterilization, just another way of saying get fixed, basically. So gonadectomy itself does impact quite a number of uh, organ systems. We are anim animals, us, same difference. We're biological systems. We work on the interplay of hormonal systems, the musculoskeletal system, the cardiovascular system, the neurological system, the inflammatory uh, mediators in the body. A whole host of, of different body systems are interacting together. They're not basically operating independently. They can operate independently, but they all need some input from all of these other systems. So removing the primary source of testosterone from the testicles and estrogen from the ovaries is going to severely impact that the interaction of the rest of those systems in the body. Males and females do make, males make estrogen and females make testosterone that the primary source of those sex hormones comes from the from the gonads, the ovaries, estrogen, the testicles, testosterone, uh, the adrenal gland, which gets stimulation from the pituitary gland, will make a little bit of estrogen and a little bit of testosterone, but it's not enough, per se, physiologically, to replace what's being taken out from the testicles or the ovaries. So gonadectomy alters the hematologic and the coagulation uh, pathways. Pituitary adrenal axis, I just mentioned, satiety, animals don't feel quite as full, so they'll continue to eat, even though they're eating probably calorically what they need, but they their brain is not getting the signals to say, oh, okay, you're now you're full. Uh, behavioral neurotransmitters in the central nervous system, uh, the thymic tissue, which uh, is involved with the immune system, musculoskeletal development, blood vessel creation and obviously reproductive ability. So I think now, I hope you're starting to get a sense of, of how critical actually the testicles and the ovaries are to the uh, overall functioning of these biological systems, dogs and cats. I'm going to reference some research papers, okay? And the first one is 
called the endogenous gonadal hormone exposure and bone sarcoma risk. Uh, bone sarcoma is bone cancer, basically one type of bone cancer. This was a paper put up by D.M. Cooley in 2002, and it covered 700 Rottweilers, so one breed, breed specific, and they broke animals down into four groups. They broke them down by gender, were they intact, or had they had a gonadectomy prior to 12 months or over 12 months of age. And they factored in body size and body weight, so that was not a factor in any of these problems. So what did they find? So they found osteosarcoma in a spayed female had nine times the risk versus the intact. So intact animals still got osteosarcoma, but it was a nine times increase when they were spayed. Females were spayed. So 46 spayed females had osteosarcoma versus five for the intact females. But spay did delay the onset by two years of uh, the animal getting bone cancer. In neutered males, very similar. There was a two and a half um, times increased risk versus intact. So the neutered males, there were 25 versus 10 for the intact males. Again, osteosarcoma did occur in the intact animals, but there was two and a half times as many in the neutered males, and they both were diagnosed at eight years of age. So survivability, uh, what age did they die? For males, there was no benefit to neutering. They both lived to about nine and a half years of age. In females, there was some benefit with an increased lifespan of two to three years. So you can see right away that, that um, from that study, it's quite a number of animals. 700 is a pretty decent decent group size, that there has been an impact. In Oprah wireless, there was an impact to spay and neutering. They increased significantly the amount of bone cancer that they had. They can still get it if they're intact, but many more, many more cases of bone cancer occurred. Okay, the next study is called Neutering Dogs, Effects on Joint Disorders and Cancers in Golden Retrievers. This, this paper is by Torres de la Riva. Um, February 2013, and it was sourced from the University of California, Davis, which is the veterinary school, uh, public veterinary school in California. They looked at 750 client male and female dogs between one and eight years of age. So again, 750 is a, a, a good sample size here. So they looked at several several diseases. They looked at hip dysplasia, which is an ab an abnormality in the formation of the coxofemoral joint, the hip joint, cranial cruciate ligament tear, which is in the knee, or stifle, lymphosarcoma or lymphoma, it's a cancer of the lymph glands, hemangiosarcoma, um, which is cancer of the blood vessels, and then mast cell tumor, which is cancer which can um, be found in the skin or in the internal organs. Hemangiosarcoma frequently is found in the spleen and the liver. And they broke these animals down into three groups, animals that were intact, neutered less than 12 months, or neutered after 12 months. So what were the findings? So early neutered males have twice the incidence of hip dysplasia, so similar to the um, bone cancer in the Rottweilers, there was twice as much hip dysplasia in the, in the uh, neutered males as uh, in the intact males, 10% um, dysplasia in the neutered versus 5% on the intact. And the lymphoma, lymphosarcoma, there was three times as many animals that had been neutered with lymphoma versus those that were intact. So 3% of the intact animals had lymphoma versus 10% of 
I think we're talking pretty significant numbers there. Early neutered males and females. This one is very shocking, actually. In the intact animals, there was no ruptured cranial cruciate ligaments. In the uh, early neutered males, that's less than 12 months of age, 5% had ruptured cranial cruciate ligaments. And in females, females spayed less than 12 months, they found 8% with uh, ruptured cranial cruciate ligaments. Now, in these large dogs, that ideally is going to be corrected with surgery because if that cranial cruciate rupture or ligament ruptures, then you're going to get an abnormal functioning of the joint, and then you're going to get osteoarthritis, and that knee will never be the same, and that animal will not use the leg as it normally would if that ligament had been or was intact. Late neutered females, basically a four times increase in hemangiosarcoma sarcoma um, neutered versus intact. Hemangiosarcoma sarcoma, 7.4% in late neutered females versus 1.6% for intact or spayed early. So in this case, here's here's a wash. Intact in early spade, there was no change in the hemangiosarcoma rates, but in the late spade, um, hemangiosarcoma was four times increased. Mass cell tumors, here's another shocker. Late neutered females, there was no... Uh, late neutered females, there was 6% had mass cell tumors versus 0% for the intact. So that's saying a lot. That's saying that an intact animal, a mass cell tumor is extraordinarily rare. 6% of the late neutered females had mast cell tumors, which is a relatively high high percentage. Pretty good indication that you can see things are not as as um, not as they would appear. And spay and neuter, let me let me digress for a minute. So the the I had mentioned some of the acute effects of surgery that can occur. Sur the surgery itself, uh, complications if there's complications, and the anesthesia for very young animals or, or older animals. When you're talking about these, about a surgery like this, you're talking about a risk versus a reward. And what is the risk-reward ratio? And the risks, a lot of times, we only really thought in the older days, especially at the beginning of my career, on the the short-term risks, the anesthesia risk, the surgic, the actual direct surgical risk, we never really considered, contemplated, and I don't think anybody had studied that I was ever told while well, I was in vet school, the, the long-term downstream complications. So we always thought of acute risk. We never thought of the chronic problem. And what is the reward? The reward were the, the pros, the benefits, right? The significant or almost total elimination of breast cancer, things like that. So here we're we're entering an age now where we have more information and we know that neutering animals has long-term consequences that are not great. Last study I'm going to reference here on dogs is called reproductive capability is associated with lifespan and cause of death in companion dogs. This one is put out by J.M. Hoffman, published in April 2013. Over 40,000 dogs sterilized and intact. And they took veterinary medical records from veterinary teaching hospitals for a 20-year span between 1984 and 2004. And 40,000 dogs is probably one of the strongest studies you're ever going to find. Okay, that's an awful lot of animals. They looked at the cause of death. They looked at the uh, animal sex. They looked at the breed. And they, and they looked at the age of the animal up to 17 and a half years. So what did they find? 
So sterilization increased life expectancy by 14% in males and 26% in females. And this is where we're talking about population medicine versus an individual animal. I had mentioned that back in the potpourri episode, individual medicine versus population or herd medicine. So what happens to an individual dog versus the population can be totally different. The uh, Most of the males live 14% longer. It doesn't mean that an individual animal is going to live 14% longer. It just means as a group, some are going to live a lot longer, some are going to live shorter periods of time. You can't, you know, in medicine, there's no guarantees. So nobody could say, well, ma'am, we're going to neuter this dog, and, and instead of dying at 10 years, he's going to die at, at uh, you know, 11 years and two months, let's say. Nobody can tell you that. And there's no guarantees in medicine. You, you can hope for the best outcome. You can work towards the best outcome, but you just don't know. Females, there was a 26% increase in life expectancy. There was a decreased risk of dying from infectious disease, trauma, vascular disease, and degenerative disease. There was an increased risk of dying from cancer and immune-mediated disease. And one of the most outstanding things about this, this paper is most of these findings uh, are statistically significant to one in one million, uh, I'll explain this in a minute, one in one million chance that it's a random event, that, that all this is by, by chance, by circumstance. I don't think you'll ever see another paper where the strength of the study is one in one million Normally in science, we look at a um, significance of 0.05, meaning that there's a five or five less than a 5% chance out of 100, basically, that the data occurred at random or by chance. So that's normal. These, this study at one in a million is obviously multiple, multiple, multiple times stronger than the 0.05 level. So you can take that. You can attach a, a big significance to this, meaning that it, that this data is is not random. It didn't just happen. It, this what they're telling you is is what's occurring. Whatever the finding is, so one in a million is basically off the charts. It's so strong that although we can't say it proves it, we can say it comes as close to proving its points uh, as is basically humanly possible. And that's one of the things about science. In science. You can never definitively prove anything 100%. You can prove something to the 99.999%, but there's always going to be a very remote chance that it did occur um, by chance, at random. And this paper is really great because it does break down diseases by breed, and it shows you uh, you know, cancer risk, uh, differences between males and females. So th this paper I really love because it, do it, it does help you think about uh, different breeds. And I think that this that this paper really brought out very strongly that this is a breed by breed decision making process. It's not an across the board process. I've neglected cats. There's not as much literature out there on cats as there is in dogs. There's two papers here that I'm going to reference on cats. First one is risk factors associated with the development of chronic kidney disease in cats evaluated at primary care veterinary hospitals. This paper was put up by J.P. Green in February of 2014, and again, a, a pretty strong uh, population um, numbers, looked at 1,200 cats across the United States, and this paper was put up by Banfield, which is a large corporate practice, which will see tens, 
uh, hundreds of thousands of patients per year. Though I think, you know, based on the number, you can you can feel pretty confident that that, that they have a good sample size. So the findings of this study, I think you can you can um, you can feel confident that the findings are 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 strong. So what did they find? It was increased odds of chronic kidney disease occurred with uh, any any weight loss, dehydration, general anesthesia in the previous year, and periodontal disease. Doesn't mean for say that periodontal disease causes chronic kidney disease, but that it's for example, it's a marker. Okay. There was also increased risk in gonadectomized animals. So neutered males had the greatest risk, and then spayed females, and then intact males and females were the least likely to be affected. Neutered males were 30% more likely than a spayed female to have an increased risk of chronic kidney disease. And oddly enough, there was a decreased risk for cats in the Northeast United States, but I don't understand that. It's who knows. I saw plenty of uh, cats with chronic kidney disease in the Northeast. And then here's a more of a pure research paper, but this one is effects of neutering on body weight and metabolic rate and glucose tolerance of domestic cats. This one is by MJ Fetman, put out in uh, March, April, 1997. It looked at 23 cats. And the reason it, it, probably only looked at 23 animals is because they did a glucose tolerance test, which they had to inject glucose in these animals and then draw blood. And that's not a simple thing to do. And what were their findings? So neutered males gained three times as much weight as intact males and females, and they put down more fat than they did muscle, which, you know, if you think biologically, testosterone men generally have more muscle mass than females, and testosterone is going to help lay down more going to be one of the reasons why that is on top of genetics. But if you take away the testosterone, you're going to put on less less muscle mass and more fat. Neutering increased food, in, food intake, and we had talked about that with decreased satiety. And uh, females had significantly decreased metabolic rates. So the, it, unfortunately, cats, we don't have quite as much information as in dogs, but there are some things. I, I know most people, if you were to say, you know, is their cat spayed or neutered? And uh, in relative to their size, most people would say yes. I know a lot of that based on my own uh, my own cats that I've had over the years, and I know from flying cats that I've seen over the years. And most people tend to overfeed. I think most of the feed instructions on cat food bags, if animals are not self-regulating, which is going to be very hard once they're spayed or neutered to self-regulate the, the caloric intake, then they're going to overeat and then they're going to gain weight. And then if they gain weight, then we know that, um, for example, they're going to be much more prone to diabetes mellitus type 2. And, that, and that's its own complication. So people need to really watch what they're doing with how much food they're feeding. And uh, hopefully I'll cover, I'll cover nutrition from my perspective in a separate podcast. So we talked a lot about dogs. There's increased risk of multiple types of cancers. There's a decrease of mammary cancer depending on when an animal is spayed. So, so there's a wash here in a certain regard. There's some improvements in some diseases, meaning that there's a less likely odds, less likely odds that they're going to occur. Spay and neutering is also going to increase the odds of certain problems, such as uh, hip dysplasia, such as cranial cruciate cruciate ligament rupture, hemangiosarcoma, mast cell tumor, and things like that. So the take-home message, as a friend of mine used to say, is there's no free lunch. If 
if you spay and neuter your animal, there's going to be downstream consequences. What should you do? I think logically your question should be, geez, what should I do with all this information? Well, what you should do is talk to your individual veterinarian about your individual pet. What are their recommendations? And then you need to really think about any potential short or um, acute consequences and any long-term consequences because you need to be informed. And that's what this podcast is all about. I think that this podcast is really the epitome of why I'm doing this. Doing the podcast is is my goal to inform and educate. Information is one thing, but education is is to me another. And then you need to take what you learn and then put it into practice. And that is one of the most difficult things in this life is to take a piece of information and then actually use it. We do get bombarded with quite a bit of uh, of information, but I think you you need to have a, a good honest discussion with the veterinarian and you have to make your decision ultimately you have to make your decision and hopefully it's an informed decision there you have it i'll post the links when i put up this podcast i hope you've enjoyed this podcast i have been on my mind for many years i think probably 20 years into my career i really started thinking about the effects of of spay and neuter and just logically to me knowing what i know about biology didn't make any sense that we were weren't causing any harm for the long term and i think that that it's been shown that there's more likely than not that we are we are causing harm in certain animals when they are spayed or neutered sometimes that's a across the board truth and then sometimes it's not so much it's it's when an animal is spayed or, spayed or neutered so risk versus reward it's been the Clinical Science Podcast. My name is Dr. Matthew Panarella. You can contact me at askdrmatt at proton.me. That's A-S-K-D-R-M-A-T-T at E-R-O-T-O-N dot M-E. I look forward to getting any messages that people might have. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Happy New Year.